Well, good morning, church. It is so good to be back with you guys. Uh, it feels like it's been a while since we've been here. Uh, we were only just out one Sunday, but uh, it's, uh, it's interesting as you get older how much you, more you begin to enjoy home. Uh, things that I used to kind of make fun of people for saying, like, you know, I'd hear my parents say, we just want to sleep in our own bed, and I'm just like, as a, you know, as a teenager and even a college student, a bed's a bed. I mean, floor, whatever, no big deal. And now I find myself saying, I just want to sleep in my own bed. Um, I used to make fun of people. I'd hear them say things like, well, we just want to get home before dark. And I'm like, you got headlights on your car. You know, what's the issue? And as we were coming back from Kansas City, that was at, came, those words came out of my mouth. I just hope we get home before dark. And I thought, yeah, there it is. We've, we've become those people that we used to make fun of. And so... Uh, Young people in the room, be, be careful how you make fun of those older than you. You will become them one day, and then you'll have to eat those words. But uh, it is so good to be back with you. We enjoyed uh, worshiping last week with Faith Baptist Church in Higginsville, Missouri. But there is nothing like worshiping with your home church. And so hearing you sing today, hearing the prayers that have been prayed, and as we get into God's Word today, I'm excited uh, for us to jump back into Ephesians 4. This this chapter has really served as a hub for us as we've worked through our church covenant since February. We've been working line by line through our church covenant, which is right there on the front of your uh, bulletin this morning. You can see what that's all about. But we're making our way today into the fourth and final section of our covenant. We'll continue to work out line by line uh, through the next few weeks. But this has served, Ephesians 4 has served as, as a hub for us. We've come back again and again to this crucial chapter. And, and I would just say to us, uh, without Ephesians 4 being in our Bibles, there would be a lot of things about the church we would just not understand. This is such a crucial passage for us to understand what it means for us to be the church and then what God has called us to do as the church. And as we talked about on Wednesday night, our being the church must precede our doing as the church. That, that's crucial in our understanding of the Christian life. But I'm excited today that we can come together and we can simply, as the church of Jesus Christ, talk about our story. God has created us in such a way that we love to share stories. That's not just true in our generation. It's been true in every generation. But there is one overarching story that has been given to the church that it is our privilege to share with one another. And so, you know, we say in, in our church covenant, it, it says that we will support the testimony of our church. And this is one of those lines uh, that were I given opportunity, I would like to alter just a little bit. Because more than just supporting the testimony of our church, I want to encourage you today to speak the testimony of our church. You know, St. Francis of Assisi is, is uh, famous for having said, or supposedly having said, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Now, it's not been confirmed that he actually said that, but I will say this. There is no preaching of the gospel without words. There is a sharing, a speaking that must take place 
And the simplicity of what God has called us to is to share our story or our testimony. And today we're going to talk about not just our individual testimonies, but we're going to talk about our corporate testimony. If we're going to commit together with one another to support or even better to speak the testimony of our church with our lips and with our lives, we need to know what the story is. We need to get our story straight. And that's what this paragraph does for us. In in just a few words here, the Apostle Paul summarizes our story as the redeemed people of God. And this is exciting. It should excite us that we get to be reminded of what Christ has done for us, what we once were, what God did, and who we now are in Christ. That's our story, folks. It is not ultimately about what we did. It's ultimately about what he has done and continues to do in us. And so let's look today at our testimony that we might be encouraged to speak it loud. First of all, our testimony begins with this simple statement. We once were dead in our sins. The good news must begin with the bad news. If you do not understand the bad news of sin and death and hell and the grave, the good news of Jesus Christ will make no sense whatsoever. You must begin where Paul begins in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, You, church, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is the most dark and depressing passage in the entire Bible if you stop at verse 3. Now, we're going to go on from there in a minute, but I want us to linger for a moment and be reminded of who we once were. So look back there at Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 19. There in verse 18, Paul says, what does it look like that we were dead in our sins? Well, first of all, we had darkened minds. Our understanding, our mental capacities were limited by our spiritual condition. This is not referring to us having a learning disability. It it was not necessarily that kind of a thing, but it was a, a spiritual disability that we could not understand the things of God. Until he opens our minds to understand this gospel, it makes no sense to us. And so if you've you've ever been sharing the gospel with someone and you just see this blank look on their face and, and they don't seem to grasp any of the things that you're saying, it's not that they don't understand your words, they just don't understand what your words mean. Just take heart in this. That's where we all once were. We were all once in that place where our minds were darkened. It's the description of Romans chapter 1, 
It's being borne out this way that Romans 1.21 says, Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. There was a dark and there was blinders on our eyes, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. We were unable to understand the things of God until he took away that darkness and shed the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ upon us. John Gill described the sinful condition in this way. He said, they have lost all sense of sin and do not feel the load of its guilt upon them and are without any concern about it, but on the contrary, commit it with pleasure, boast of it and glory in it, plead for it and publicly defend it and openly declare it, and stand in no fear of future judgment which they ridicule and despise. John Gill wrote those words a few hundred years ago. But is it any different today? What is the greatest problem in the United States of America today? I would say it is simply this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of the coming judgment. There is no fear of a holy God who is just and righteous in all of his ways, before whom we will all one day stand and give an account for our lives. The missing element in America today is the fear of the Lord. Because we have darkened minds, not only that, but we have hardened hearts. It's not just that our understanding is darkened, but that our hearts, the very core of our beings, is hardened against God. And if you were to go and just to search the term hard hearts in the Scriptures, you're going to see all kinds of references to the hardness of man's heart. So it is, it is not just that, that we don't go seeking after God, we don't want to go seeking after God. We have no desire for the things of God. Go and read Romans 3 and see the gravity of our sinful condition, that our hearts are hardened against Him. And in order for us to know this holy God, we must have a heart transplant. As Ezekiel writes, our hardened hearts must be removed and replaced with hearts of flesh. Those rock-hard hearts must be removed from us and replaced with a new heart that's renewed by Christ. Again, we'll go to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 2 says, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of judgment when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I would say to you this morning, I would plead with you this morning that if your heart is hardened against God, if you are not bowing the knee to King Jesus in submission and faith, if you are continuing in a hardened heart, then understand very clearly you are storing up wrath toward yourself that will be handed out by Almighty God on the day of judgment. 
It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We were not only darkened in our understanding and hardened in our hearts, but we also had calloused wills. There's a progression here. The darkened understanding leads unto the hardness of heart, which produces the calluses in the will. The will, that which produces our actions, our desires lead to our actions. That's the way we're created by God. At the end of the day, the reality is this. By and large, we do what we want. That's the reality. And so in order for that that doing to change, our desiring must first change. God has to give us a new heart that we might then do the things that he would desire for us to do. Otherwise, the doing will be empty. Otherwise, it will be the filthy rags that Isaiah spoke of in terms of our righteous deeds. Look at what he says there about the calluses upon our wills in verse 19. He says they've become callous, hardened over by repeated action. That's the picture of a callous. Repeated action against God has produced a callous upon our wheels. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Again, if you go over to Romans 1, you see this picture. And in Romans 1, it says not only, as it says here, that they've given themselves up to, but in Romans 1, there's even a more fearful statement. Three times it says, because of their hardness of heart, because of the calluses upon our wheels, because of our repeated rebellion against God, three times in Romans 1, it says, so God gave them up. God gave them over to what their sinful hearts desired. And again, fearful words that God would give us over to what our sinful hearts desire. It's the picture of Genesis chapter 6. Just before the flood, it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually just take that statement in for a moment again this may sound like harsh judgment but listen to what god's judgment and his judgment is good and right and true in every way listen to the judgment of god that preceded that world destroying flood in the days of noah god's judgment was that every intention of the thoughts of the heart of man was only evil continually and you say surely that's not the case we're a mixture of good thoughts and bad thoughts, of righteous inclinations and unrighteous inclinations. That's the way we view ourselves, but see that what God is sitting before us today was not just pre-flood. And by the way, the flood didn't fix this. The flood did not fix this. It took the blood of Jesus to fix this. The only way that the thoughts of our heart are not just evil continually from the view of Almighty God and His perspective is the one that matters. See, we view ourselves as a mixture. If you're like me, we have this tendency to say, well, there's a, there's a little good and a little bit bad mixed in there together. And we kind of then, then it leads us to this thought that perhaps at the end, my good will outweigh my bad. And then God will say, well, good enough, dude, come on in. 
That's not the word, is it? That's not what the gospel says. That's not the way it's going to be measured out. Understand from the perspective of God, this Genesis 6-5 description is every one of us apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. Apart from his shedding the light of the gospel into our minds, apart from his, him replacing that hardened heart, apart from him removing the calluses from our will and giving us new desires that we might delight in doing his will, apart from that, we are deserving of much worse than the flood. The fires of his judgment are what remain. But there is hope. There is hope because of what Christ has done for us. And so if you sit here today darkened in your understanding, hardened in your heart, and calloused in your will, understand there is hope for you. And I want you to see the hope today. As we jump into verses 20 and 21, we begin to be reminded, as Paul loves to do, and as I would love to remind you this morning, that while we were dead in our sins, God made us alive in Christ. Now notice something here before we go one step farther. The glory in the story is not what you and I did. Please take hold of that today. The glory in this story has nothing to do with what you and I did. What we did left us dead in our trespasses and sins. And then there is these two glorious words that emerge at the very heart of the gospel. The two most glorious words in all of the English language are found right in the middle of Ephesians chapter 2. We came there to verse 3. We are left in the agony of our sinful condition. And then Ephesians 2, verse 4, begins with these words. But God. And that changes everything. This is our story, church. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. What can a dead man do about his condition? Nothing. Nothing could we do about our sinful condition. There would not be enough good works to weigh out the scales. But God. Let's go on reading. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. He didn't wait for us to fix it, church. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. And He raised us up with Him. It was not just that we were saved. We were raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is our position now. That's not just talking about pie in the sky, by and by, glory to come. That's talking about now. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that, here's his purpose, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's heavenly 
goal for eternity will not be to display the good works of you and I. Please understand that. Understand his goal in glory will not be to put our works on display. It will be to put on display his work on our behalf. He is worthy. This is why we gather on Sunday morning and sing praises to his name. This is why we sing, this is my story, this is my song. It is our story, but we're not the main character. Don't misunderstand. Get yourself out of the picture of the center of the gospel and put Jesus where he rightly belongs to be. He deserves our praise and our adoration and all the glory belongs to him. God made us alive in Christ. Notice what he says there in verses 20 and 21. These amazing pictures. It's a, it's, it's a picture of education that's taking place. He says, this is not how you learned Christ. It's a picture of education. And notice as you look at these verses, the three things, that Christ is, first of all, Christ is the curriculum. Christ is what is being taught. May he always be taught from this pulpit. And in every place that teaching takes place here, may it be all about him. Christ is the curriculum. Christ himself is the instructor. He says there, you heard about him, but I want you to notice, if you were to go back to the original Greek, that word about's nowhere to be found. It literally says in the Greek, you heard him. You heard him. He is the curriculum. He is the instructor, and he is the classroom. You were taught in him. It's all about Jesus. What are the main parts of this teaching? First of all, that his life has become our life. His life has become our life. Before we run to the cross and we want to get there, let's recognize the infinite value of the life of Jesus. Before we run to his death, let's understand the infinite value of him having lived the perfect life that meant that his sacrifice at the cross would have the value necessary for our redemption. His life has become our life. Colossians 3 says, for you have died. Here's the Christian story. I was dead and then I died. It seems strange, doesn't it? But that's our story. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is our story, church. His life has become our life. His death has canceled our debt. Let us never forget it was his sacrifice that did for us what we could never have begun to do for ourselves. We were never going to get it done. We did everything necessary for our condemnation. We could do none of what was necessary for our salvation, much less our sanctification. Again, in Colossians 2, you, you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Not some of our trespasses. The debt has been erased he did not leave a portion for you to do business with. He said, it's finished. The debt is paid by canceling 
the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Legally, every one of us stood guilty before a holy God. There were no witnesses on our behalf. There was no evidence that we could plead. And then Jesus came along, our great high priest and our mediator, and he took that record of debt that stood rightfully against us, understand, rightfully against us, and he canceled it by nailing it to the cross. This is our story, church. Not only has his life become our life, and his death canceled our debt, but his resurrection is our assurance. We cannot tell that old, old story apart from the resurrection. His rising in newness of life is our reassurance that all of his promises are yes and amen in Christ. His resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile. We're still dead in our sins. We're wasting our time as followers of Jesus Christ if Christ has not been raised. But because Christ has been raised from the dead, because of his bodily resurrection, resurrection he who died on the cross and was laid in the tomb that three days later he rose up from the dead because of that reality we have a story to tell we have an account to give john 14 6 jesus reminds us i am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me and the world says wait a minute that sounds really exclusive man our world loves inclusivity today and they hear John 14, 6, and they say that sounds so exclusive. We hate that. And it is exclusive in the sense that Jesus was saying, no one comes to the Father except through me. He is the only way to eternal salvation. But it's also inclusive in this way. All who would come to the Father through him are welcome. Jews and Gentiles, males and females, young and old, poor and rich. The way has been opened by his blood and there will come a day when that way is shut. But that day has not yet, has not yet come and so there is still hope, there is still time for us to tell our story that others might be gathered in to his family and his kingdom they might come before the father by faith because they hear of god's glorious works through us finally this morning the third part of our story part a we were dead in our sins part b god made us alive in christ but there's more to the story see sometimes we stop there there's more to the story because now we're learning to live like him and that is Paul's focus in the paragraph that we're focusing on today. His focus is what happens in our lives as a result of the being made alive in Christ. Now there's a life to live that's so radically different from what we thought was life before. 
It's not just pray a prayer, trust in Jesus, and then live however you want to until he takes you to glory. No, we no longer can live that way because we have a new heart and a new mind and a new will. We have new desires and new affections that we didn't have before. God has so radically changed us and changing us that we cannot continue in those old ways. And so again, Ephesians 2, by grace you've been saved. It's by grace through faith. This is not your own doing. If you would underline and highlight and put 40 stars beside that phrase, it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. You say, what's the gift of God? All of it. Let me just summarize it for you. All of it is the gift of God. It's not a result of works that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What's he talking about? Again, flip back over to Ephesians 4 and you see it. Let's pick up there. Assuming that you heard about him, verse 21, and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, taught to do what? To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Three aspects of this new life I, I want you to see. He lays them out sequentially here. and They build on one another. First of all, in learning to live like him, we are putting off the old man, the old self that he references here. If you want to learn more about that, go over and read Romans 5 through Romans 8, and you'll begin to see this description of what it looks like and to, to put off the old man or the old self, who we were before we came to Christ, that, that that old man continues to dwell within us. He just no longer has authority over us. There's a new man that has authority, and his name is King Jesus. And so we're putting off the old man. How do we do that? It's by repentance. It's by turning from sin and self. It's by turning away from that which brought the destruction in the first place. We're saved by grace. And, and Paul says, well, so then should we go on sinning so that we can get more grace? If grace covers our sins, should we do more sin to get more grace? And he says, by no means. Why would we do that? We can't live in that any longer. This is a new life. There's new life in Christ. And repentance is that means by which we put off the old man. John Stott said, It's because we have already put off our old nature in that decisive act of repentance called conversion that we can logically be commanded to put away all these practices which belong to that old rejected life. See, some people have wrestled over these verses and they're saying, okay, so is Paul talking about something that's already happened or something that's in the process of happening? You want to know the answer to that question? Yes. It's all of it. Paul is talking about the fact that there was a decisive moment of repentance 
called conversion, when you came to faith in Christ, when he shed the light of the gospel in your mind, when he took that hardened heart and replaced it with a heart of flesh, when he removed the calluses from your will and gave you new delights and desires, he's talking about that was a decisive moment, but that decisive moment plays out in the life of the believer all the way to our final breath when we will stand before God. This is what's called sanctification, the process by which God makes us to be what he has already declared us to be in Christ. So much more I'd like to say about that. We're going to be talking about sanctification Wednesday night. Feel free to come out and hear that. All right. We are putting off the old man by repentance. Second part, verse 23. Not just putting off the old man. Man, it's so tempting for folks to characterize the Christian life as just all the things that we don't do anymore. There's so much more. Look at it, verse 23. Not only we're we putting off the old man, we're being renewed by his word and by his spirit. And renewed in particular in our thinking. This is key. Because again, we are so tempted to view the Christian life as a change in our behavior. Don't make that mistake. The change in behavior comes as a result of the change in thinking. This is crucial. This is why I urge you week by week to be in the Word of God because this is the Word of God that will renew your mind, that will help you to think new thoughts and think in new patterns, that will cast out that old man, that old way of thinking that was all about sin and self and will help us to think the thoughts of Christ. He says in Philippians 2, you have the mind of Christ. Now live like it. He's already given you everything that is necessary. We're not waiting for some uh, subsequent blessing to come. We've been given all the tools necessary. We just need to put them into practice. And what Paul's showing us here is here's how to put them into practice. There's got to be repentance, putting off the old man. There's got to be renewing of our minds by his word and by the power of his spirit. Again, Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why? That you may test and discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Renewing of our minds by His Word and by His Spirit. But again, it's not even stopping there. The third step is just as crucial. Putting off the old man by repentance. Being renewed in our minds by His Word and by His Spirit. And then putting on the new man by faith. If only the church today could be identified more by what we're putting on than by what we're putting off. You see, this would change the identity of the church today. Because our world looks at us as those who are just getting rid of all the things that the world thinks are fun. And we've realized there's a new definition of fun in the Christian life. There's a greater joy that actually lasts far beyond the experience. We're being renewed by putting on the new man, and we do this by faith. The Christian life begins by faith, it continues by faith, and it will continue by faith until faith becomes sight when we stand before the one who gave us the faith in the first place. Please take note of that. 
You did not figure out faith on your own. I know subjectively, many of us, our experience was, was seemed like, it seemed like at the time I came to faith, I did, you know, I prayed the prayer, I recognized the gospel, I, I did this. I, it was an old song that we sang back in the 90s called, I Found Jesus, as if he was missing somewhere. No, no, let me under, help you understand. Go read the book of Romans and understand this very clearly. You didn't find Jesus, Jesus found you. You were the one that was lost, and he came as the shepherd seeking the lost sheep, and he got you out of that pit, and he put you on his shoulders, and he carried you home. What was your part in that? You went astray. I went astray. We rebelled in sin against God. That was our part. Jesus did everything to erase the consequences of our part. And I want you to understand very clearly, church, he was in no way sweeping sin under the rug. The cross reminds us of the gravity of our sin, but also of the greatness of his grace. What is the summation of all these things? I'll just simply leave you with 2 Corinthians 5.17. This is our story, church. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's the Christian life, in Christ. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. It's passed away and it's continuing to pass away until it'll have passed away. That's what's happening. Behold, pay attention. Take note of this. The new has come. It has come, it's continuing to come, and it will continue to come until the day when we stand before the King of all kings and he says to us, as he does in the book of Revelation, behold, I'm making all things new. And so here's the glorious part of our story. That which Christ is doing in us, church, is the very thing. He is putting on display a preview of coming attractions. What he is doing in the church as he is bringing us from glory to glory, as he is casting out the old man and bringing in the new, as he is taking us away from sin and self and hell and the grave and bringing us into the glories of his kingdom, what he is doing in the church as this story is being lived out in us is he is putting on display a preview of coming attractions when one day he will do the very same work with all of creation. All of creation will be made new and we will rejoice in the work of our Father, in His kingdom, in His eternal rule, in the fact that yes, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. All that seems of such gravity today will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. I would just ask you simply this morning, where are you in this story? Every person in this room, I need you to understand this morning, you are somewhere in this story. You may today continue to be dead in your sins because you have not trusted Jesus Christ to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. You may be striving after a self-made righteousness. 
You may be continuing to run after self-salvation projects in which you hope that one day you'll stand before God and your good will outweigh your bad, and he'll say, good enough, dude, come on in. I want you to understand that's not the way the story goes. Apart from being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we are a people without God and without hope in the world. Perhaps today you find yourself dead in your trespasses and sins, but for the first time you're realizing it. If you would realize today that you're dead in your sins, would you also realize this? That Christ's sacrifice on your behalf was more than sufficient. There is nothing that you could have done to earn this great salvation that he offers freely. And there is nothing that you have done that would eliminate you from receiving his grace. His grace is greater than our sin. You say, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The Apostle Paul, who called himself the chief of sinners, who committed his life to destroying the church of Jesus Christ, he said his grace was sufficient for me. His power was made perfect in my weakness. That can be your story as well. Today you will either find yourself dead in your sins or alive in Christ. And if you are alive in Christ, your story is not over. His purpose in your remaining days on this earth is that you would learn to live like Him. Not just sit and stew in the sanctuary until He comes back for you. He has called us to an active, by faith kind of life where we are being transformed day by day as we dive into his word, as we bow our knees in prayer, as we share our story with a lost and dying world. He is calling you in to an eternity-changing mission. So whatever your life is devoted to right now, let me help you to understand, it pales in comparison to what God is calling you into. So where are you in the story today? And will you ask God to give you the grace to speak this story in the coming week? Father, help us. Lord, what glorious things that you have done. We, rightly understanding these things, how can we help but speak of what we've seen and heard? We were dead in our sins, and you raised us to new life in Christ. We were utterly helpless, incapable of doing anything about our sinful condition. There was no prayer that could be prayed. There was no baptismal water strong enough. There were not enough good deeds. There was, there was nothing that we, were, we could possibly begin to do. And you did it all for us. You rescued us from sin and death and hell and the grave through the blood poured out by Christ and his cross. And that we rejoice today. We were made alive in the one who rose from the dead. And one day like him, should you tarry until our dying breath, one day like him, we will be raised from the dead glorified bodies that no longer endure the, the sin-induced sufferings of this world. Father, would you simply help us 
to hear and to receive and to rejoice in our story once again today. That we might glory in our God and we might seek to do good to others by telling them the old, old story of the Savior who came from glory, who gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. Father, would you lead us in response to the gospel today? We pray in Jesus' name.